This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I'm speaking on Augustine's Confessions and the Religious Nature of the Person tonight. Um, it's about an hour-long talk, and so you can just kind of settle in and relax. How many of you have read Augustine's Confessions? Is there anybody? Just a few people. Well, I'm going to kind of reference it throughout, obviously. Um, but it doesn't depend on you having prior knowledge. I'll try to describe things um, as well as I can uh, if you've not read it before. We are at the end of an era, I think, in America, but also in the, the West generally. What ancient Latin speakers once called a secula, a significant segment of time which is marked by certain identifiable features. The era might be called liberal or it might be called secular, and the latter is probably more fitting since one of the defining features of this era is that its great advocates and authorities promulgate the fiction that human beings are secular by nature. One doesn't need any grand argument to observe, though, that the secular era and the secular idea of the person is ending. We can simply look around at the contemporary world we inhabit. Even your uh, lobby of your student union here is full of religious symbolism. Examples of institutional wokeness, a phrase which trades on the American tradition of Protestant awakenings, far from non-religious, far from a non-religious tendency, what our secular liberal orders more reliably and more increasingly produce is, as Alex said, not no religion, but very, very bad religion, which disorders human passions, intellects, and wills. The so-called secular liberal order tends not towards what Aristotle and St. Thomas would have called the virtue of liberality, but are rather absolutely coercive in their beliefs, beliefs which all good people must share, beliefs that can only be called mystical under totemic terms such as identity, often through predicates of gender and race, demanding that human beings make an offering to new pieties about the nature of the human person. So it is perhaps ironic that the secular age should come to a religious end. It points to a natural truth. Human beings simply are religious by nature. This, in fact, is the more common and ancient historical view. This does not mean that human beings are naturally religious in the right way. Indeed, the religious nature of the person is restless, as Augustine so famously reminds us. This brings me to the subject of my talk tonight. Augustine's account of the human person is, in some sense, uh, autobiographical, in the material sense of it, uh, especially concerning conversion. Yet it is also, I think, wrong to think about Augustine's confession as subjective. Rather, it's deeply objective. In fact, when he writes his Retractiones, he says, the Confessions is simply an objective account of my misdeeds, my deeds and misdeeds, my vices uh, and my confession of, of my faith in God. He sees the Confessions not as some sort of expression of his inner feeling, but as something deeply objective. He believes that the human person is rational by nature, to be sure, but the appetitive, rational, choosing animal is most fundamentally, in Augustine's view, religious by nature. I'll focus on this tonight, trying to help us understand how his famous words 
our hearts are restless until they rest in God, are rooted in an objectively religious understanding of the human person. Objectively, because it is a common mistake to think of the restless heart as something like the German word gefühl, modern religious feeling, something that is subjectivized, interiorized, and therefore not scientific, not realistic, not true. There are good reasons for why people read Augustine's Restless Heart in this soft way, but I think the subjectivized tendency distorts Augustine's view of the person as objectively liturgical, religious. I'll argue that the key to understanding uh, Augustine's uh, view of the person thus rides on the concept, the cultic category of, of sacrifice. He in, invokes these cultic categories all throughout the confessions, and these cultic categories always align with his concept of the heart, which is what he calls the seat of the soul. The seat of the soul is the heart in which the passions and the intellect, the will, all subsist. Thus, the cultic category that helps us to most fully understand Augustine's concept of the human person, I'll argue tonight, is the concept of sacrifice. Christianity had only been a licit religio, an allowed religion, for 84 years when Augustine started writing his Confessions in 397 AD. It had only been three decades since Emperor Julian the Apostate had restored animal sacrifices in pagan temples and revoked all the privileges that Constantine had bestowed on Catholic Christians. It's a century like our own, in a, in a way, caught between Christian and pagan worlds. There were many men who documented their own search for a higher ground, yet none, um, no, no other uh, elite Roman wrote so eloquently in pursuit of happiness and the perfection of life as Augustine did in his Confessions. He seems both perfectly familiar to us as moderns, but also perfectly strange. And I wanna help you to see his strangeness tonight. Augustine lives in a world which is comfortable with seeing animal sacrifices made in the temple. Have you ever seen animal sacrifices made in the temple? It would be strange, right? His world, unlike ours, is suffused with altars, with sacrifices, with incense. The memory of the martyrs sits adjacent to temples recently destroyed by Emperor Theodosius. And so Augustine authors a confession in a milieu which has a sacrificial depth grammar and so resonates not simply as a subjective confession of the heart, all the 19th century romantics, but as itself a sacrifice to behold. And thus he will repeatedly speak about the sacrifice of my confessions. He will speak of his confessions in two senses, the confession of sin and also the confession of his faith in God. Yet what's somewhat strange to us is that he speaks of these confessions as sacrifices. Indeed, he also refers to the sacrifice of my confessions in a comprehensive way which points to altars. And it is as his appeal here that I think most resonates with our understanding of the human person in Western civilization. And so a return to Augustine's understanding of the religious nature of the person is not just a historical study, but I think something that's essential for us to recover, an imagination that includes 
this fundamentally religious view. The famous phrase, our hearts are restless until they rest in God, is to be viewed then as code, as it were, for our religious nature. To see through the restless heart that he confesses sin precisely through the liturgic, cultic image of sins as sacrifices, which I'll talk about. And he shows his mother Monica's tears as sacrifices. He shows his entire intellectual journey towards God as a movement away from a liturgy of pride towards the sacrifice of an anguished and humbled heart united to true sacrifice. Seeing confessions in light of these themes helps us to understand why the restlessness makes sense as an objective category for the human person. On one level, restless until we find our rest in God is a fitting summary of the whole work, but in another way, it obscures. Augustine begins the confessions not with this famous phrase. It does come in the first paragraph. Our hearts are restless comes in the first paragraph. It's the words that everybody knows about the confessions, but they aren't the first words that Augustine puts down. The first words that Augustine writes when he sets out to write the confessions is not our hearts are restless, but God is great. He begins with the priority of God. The person isn't prior. God is prior. And it's in light of God that we understand the person. It's God's omnipotence and wisdom which initiate his confessions. It's only secondarily that he begins to speak about us humans as, quote, a due part of your creation. And so to understand the human person rightly, we have to understand the human person as one who owes a debt to the creator. God is great. We owe a debt. Our debt is manifest in both our very createdness and our participation in the goodness of creation as well as in our sin. For not even the clamor of our sins can quiet the innate desire we have for God. This phrase, the innate desire for God, is a Thomistic one. It's not in Augustine as a technical set of terms, but this is basically the idea of a restless heart, an innate desire for God. It has a long history in the scholastic Thomistic tradition, but from the outset of the Confessions, we see it as something essential. Augustine makes distinctions between uh, true and false religion and thinks that that is crucial for the restless heart. We are irresistibly religious by nature. The only question for us is which religion? We are homo liturgicus. We are the liturgical person, and we are made to praise God. And he writes, it is God who does the stirring. Uh, we are uh, naturally drawn to God, but often in myriad ways, uh, which cannot get attached to God. And so Augustine says it's God himself who stirs us to praise him in a way which brings us joy. When he moves in us, it is not as a foreigner, but as one who has made us for himself. It is precisely the innate desire for God then with which, with which God works as he draws us into union with himself. You stir us, Aquinas, I mean, Augustine writes, sorry, Freudian slip. You stir us, tu excitas. You stir us so that praising you 
may bring us joy because you have made us and drawn us to yourself. And our heart, in the Maria Bolding translation, she has that our heart is unquiet until it rests in you. Now, we don't like that because we like the restless quote. We don't want, like Maria Bolding's uh, choice of being unquiet until it rests in you, but she's being super literal because the Latin is in quietum. It's literally, you have something disordered in you that doesn't have the tranquility of order. That's what Augustine thinks that the universe is made with and that we are made with a tranquility of order and something has made that unquiet. Something has disrupted the right order of the heart or the right order of the seat of the soul, if you prefer. And quietum seems jarring, but it gets at something important. Our innate desire for God is good. It's a... Uh, something that is made to unite us to God, but due to the regime of sin, or the semi-regime of sin, uh, it is frustrated from reaching its natural end. So God must stir in us something new in order to unite us to himself. Implicit in Augustine's opening paragraph, one might say then, is a distinction between our nature as essentially religious, order to God, in a restless way, and then stirred from above. We sometimes say elicited in theology, stirred from above by God for true worship, which brings eternal happiness. In this history of theology, we uh, this tends to be dominated, dominates the nature-grace disputes. Um, the nature-grace disputes uh, have, have um, in a sense, obscured also the the way in which uh, Augustine's confessions uh, have a distinction between a natural religious nature, but uh, also a supernatural religious end for that nature that only God can bring about. And Augustine's confessions are a kind of uh, narrative version of those distinctions in modern nature grace disputes. So from the opening lines of Augustine's Confessions, indeed just the first paragraph, we can take a few important philosophical and theological claims away. One, the priority of God in understanding creation. Augustine does not begin with the human person, but with God. It is by first understanding the primacy of God and his goodness that we can understand the person. Secondly, the human person is religious by nature. We have an inchoate longing or desire to know God, an inchoate sense that we owe the cause of our existence a debt, just like we owe our parents a debt. And so we are these religious creatures who, due to our sins, often fail to recognize, often fail to recognize what we owe, just like we sometimes fail to recognize what we owe to our parents, William. Uh, we often fail to orient ourselves, or rather we always fail to orient ourselves rightly by our own power to praise the one true God. Thirdly, our religious nature arising from our dependence on God for our existence and our longing to know God as our cause and end can be raised up to something which is above our nature, or rather which elevates our nature by divine action. All of this arises once again, from the opening page, the priority of divine action in both creating and saving us then should convince us alone that what Augustine is after is a proper account of the religious nature of the 
person. And this is executed at several different levels. Firstly, I want to talk about the one that's strangest to us, sin as sacrifice. We must observe, as we continue to read through Augustine's Confessions, a very strange use of the phrase sacrifice. Indeed, in the first book he sets out to understand sin as a phenomenon we experience, even quite apart from our knowledge of sin. You, if you've read it, you know he talks about infants and how infants can be greedy with each other, and this is evidence of some primal fault. He's not talking about original sin yet, but he's looking for phenomenological experiential evidence that there is some prior problem that we must deal with. He recounts the way in which envy or greed is manifested in even the pre-rational behavior of infants. Um, I haven't seen that myself with our twins, but they're preemies, so who knows. This is part of his effort to understand evil as a privatio boni, as a privation of a prior goodness, something that takes away nature. Uh, Aquinas will talk about evil as a, a sickness of our nature, as, a, as a, something that works like a second nature because it can only work on the basis of a prior good, right? And that's all Augustine. Evil and sin simply cannot be understood apart from a prior good. Uh, uh, and in book two, we get a very famous example of this, the stealing of pears. The stealing of pears. He, Augustine begins by observing that there's a law written on our hearts. This is St. Paul. Uh, not even sin itself, or in some translation, not even iniquity itself, uh, can erase this law written in ourself, on our hearts. He's talking, of course, of the conscience, of, of um, our capacity to know uh, what is good. Um, traditionally, we understand this phrase uh, as conscience or the capacity of our intellect to distinguish good from evil. When we feel guilt or when we are confronted with even the most fleeting awareness that we're, we've done wrong, we are actually in touch with the goodness of our nature before we're in touch with the evil that we've done. Calvinist readers of Augustine unfortunately misunderstand him here. He's resolutely focused on an examination of sins. He's not out to prove total depravity. He's out to demonstrate that we experience sins and what is the nature of sins that we experience. Uh, he's resolutely focused on uh, an honest confession of his sins, but equally aware that it would be impossible to examine sins as sins where they're not a prior good from which the sins are a departure, right? So the very confession of stealing pears, right? The very confession of sin is always already a confession of God's goodness, right? When you confess your sins, you're always already confessing God's goodness because you're saying, I departed from this good, right? This is what is good, I have departed from it. It's like the very structure of baptism when you turn away. So the very confession of stealing pears for Augustine has this double meaning. It is both the double meaning of confessions, the confession of sin and the confession of God's goodness. The stealing of pears is thus rightly famous, rightly famous. At every turn, Augustine is confessing his sin, but also the true faith. So why does he want to steal a pear? Uh, for those of you who haven't read it, he confesses that he didn't need a pair. 
He wasn't hungry for a pear. Uh, he didn't uh, even want to taste it. He didn't even want a bite of the pear. He says he simply wanted to enjoy the theft of the pear, right? Which is what, exactly? He wanted to enjoy the sin. He didn't want to enjoy the pear. He wanted to enjoy the theft of the pear. Wow, what kind of desire is that? He asks, really profound question. What is that kind of desire? Um, and it doesn't need to be theft to ask and answer that question. It could be the de desire to detach sexual acts from their purpose. Why do I want that? I don't even want the person. I just want the pleasure or something. Or I want the, I want to be able to steal this from uh, its proper order. It, it could be the desire to deceive, right? Um, uh, that you just enjoy being able to get away with a lie, right? Or the desire to undermine your parents. I just was testing the boundaries, and I enjoyed testing the boundaries. I didn't even want the thing I was disobeying, right? We deal with that a lot at home. <laughs> the object isn't even desired. Now, what kind of desire is that? When you're not desiring the pair, but just the sin of the theft of the pair. What kind of desire is the desire to enjoy the thing which is undermining you, is another way of putting Augustine's puzzle. He wants us to puzzle over the very irrationality of our sinful desires and how they flee from the good and how every evil and every sin is to be understood as this uh, flight from goodness. It's like the first angel who fell, Lucifer, who wanted to enjoy God's light for himself. He didn't want to be a participation in God's glory. He wanted that light to be his possession. So he made that mysterious, irrational turn away from God, who's the source of his light. And so it is with our sins. All of our sins are sort of repetition, a mysterious repetition of an irrational turn away from our own good and from the highest good, which is God. We, in our sins, want to take away goodness in the very act of privately possessing, or rather we want to, in seeking to privately possess goodness, actually take away the goodness that we seek. So we deprive ourselves of the very goods we want in sin. Augustine's not satisfied with just one pair in the famous example. He and his friends do what? They load up the wheelbarrows, right? Load them up, enormous quantities, he says. For what? To throw to pigs. Why? Because that was forbidden, right? They enjoy the thrill of transgression. Once again, your lobby. They enjoy the thrill of transgressing just laws, just order. What sort of love was this, he asks. He writes very beautifully, I was in love with my own ruin. He writes, I was in love with decay, not with the thing for which I was falling into decay. It wasn't in love with the pears, but I was in love with decay itself. Wow. So that's self-knowledge. Augustine describes this love as leaping downward from God's support, leaping downwards from the goodness of God into self-destruction. 
Indeed, this is how he sees the very character of sin as self-destructive. Suicidal. What motivates our sin? What moves us to do that which is disintegrative of our good? It's always a love of some good uh, thing in which sin gains an entrance and then begins to work its destructive powers upon that good that we've seen. For example, friendship. Friendships, he says, can forge a sweet unity, and then sin can creep in through our immoderate love of that unity. Right? Gangs work this way, right? Twitter mobs work this way. So the mutual egging on of our friends, our desire for the good of our friendship, obscures the higher unity uh, with God to which we're called. Sin gains an entrance through our love of the good, but then sin takes hold. He says, I feasted on the sin, nothing else. I feasted on the sin. This is going to be a key phrase. I feasted on the sin. That idea of feasting is also tied to altars. Feasting is an altar word, right? Feasting is, I feasted on the sin. So what sort of altar does one feast on sin? And he's going to say an interior altar. It's an interior altar. You watch the stealing of pears doesn't end with him feasting on pears, but feasting on sin. And the feasting in Augustine's text is clearly religious. It's tied to an altar. It's not the pear, but the sin he enjoys. At the start of book three, Augustine writes, I had no desire for the food that does not perish. Right? What could he be referring to there? The food that does not perish is an eternal food on a heavenly altar. I had no desire for the food that does not perish. So, what did I do? In my very religiousness, I polluted the stream of friendship by filthy desires and clouded its purity, clouded the purity of my friendships with hellish lusts. Yet all the while, befouled and degraced though I was, my boundless vanity made me long to appear elegant and sophisticated in the stream of society. And so he goes to stage plays and the theater in which he watches how the viewer is united to vice on the stage. He wants us to see uh, in the very uh, corruption of movements outside of ourselves, corruptions outside of ourselves as we gaze upon them and we find sympathy with them, they begin to corrupt something in us. So he frequently asks, where are our sympathies going? Where do our, we're naturally, our, as human beings, we're naturally relational and we're naturally going to sympathize with what we see. And he asks, where do our sympathies lead us? Where uh, do the sympathies born of our good relationships with others lead us? As spectators, we might feel led to uh, lust or sorrow. He writes, quote, to be sure, the power of sympathy derives from the stream of friendship, and so it's good. But where does it flow? That's the question. Where are my relational sympathies flow? Whither is it bound? Instead of rejecting the passions like the Stoics did, Augustine asks us a more restrained question. In keeping with his discussion of pairs, where does it all flow? Is it flowing towards sinful pleasure and impurity? Is it flowing towards the feasting of sin? Or is it flowing to a higher feast? Augustine explicitly tells us that his sins were a foul sacrifice. He writes that his passions led him to abandon God. And in book three, chapter three, section five, he writes, 
uh, my passions led me to abandon God, and I was plunged into treacherous abysses, into depths of unbelief and a delusive allegiance to demons to whom I was offering my evil deeds in sacrifice. Now that should be a shocking image to you that people don't talk about a lot when they read the confession. Augustine by book three is thinking about his sins as sacrifices, as food on a foul altar. This is one of our first clues for understanding, understanding how Augustine objectively sees the restless heart as liturgical. Indeed, how he seems to imagine an interior altar the heart, upon which his evil deeds, his sins, are sacrifices made to demons, have been uh, made impure, and how he needs his interior or altar to be cleansed. It may shock us to think of our sins as food for the demons, but there it is, black and white, in book three. Where does it all flow? He repeatedly asks. Our sins are part of a liturgy of pride that puffs us up with air and drags us down into perversion, a self-destructive turn. He insists that he wants to turn back. He wants to be the one who turns himself back, but he does not know the way. Secondly, since a sacrifice and also confessions as a whole as a sacrifice. By the fifth book, Augustine is speaking more broadly about the sacrifice of my confession. What does he mean? He begins, book five, begging God, please accept the sacrifice of my confessions. What does he mean? Does he mean his confessions of sin? Does he mean his confessions of faith? Does he mean the actual writing of the work, which is hard, which is an offering? What does he mean? Whenever Augustine reaches a kind of crisis in his confession of sin or faith, we often see him bring his mother into the conversation. Call mom. St. Monica comes into the story at crucial points, and whenever he brings her in, guess what? He always speaks about her sacrifices. It's a good thing to do with your mom to remind her how grateful you are for the sacrifices she's made for you. For example, the spell of Manichaeanism, this Gnosticism that he was tied to for about six, uh, nine years. He thinks that the spell of Manichaeanism was loosened not only by his skeptical doubts about it, but because of his mother's tears which he calls sacrifices. In almost Marian terms, Augustine sees Monica's intercessions as a kind of vicarious sacrifice. He describes her tears as, quote, the sacrifice of her heart's blood. Now, if you're on that interior altar and you're thinking about the sacrifices of the heart's blood and the pagan neighbors have other kinds of blood on their altars, it's poignant, right? The sacrifice of her heart's blood offered to you day after day, night after night, for my welfare. Someone else is making a sacrifice on my behalf. We call that vicarious sacrifice. Augustine's quick to add here in book five that her sacrifice was, quote, efficacious, not because she made such an offering. Her sacrifice was not efficacious because she made an offer offering, but because you, Lord, were present. Now, what does that tell you about how he thinks about sacrifice? Our sacrifices only become efficacious when they're joined to Christ's real presence, right? She is making these sacrifices of her heart's blood at 
mass. He says twice a day, morning and evening, Monica brought her sacrifice of tears to the sacrament of the altar. Augustine becomes imperial retor in Milan in 384 AD. That's rock star status. Milan's the heart of the Roman administrative state, and he immediately comes under the influence of the great Bishop Ambrose, whom he finds intellectually serious, compelling, kind, and holy. He most uh, laudably looks to him as a holy father. Monica joins him in Milan the next year, and Augustine will speak of this period as a time in which error was being poured out of him. Wouldn't that be great if people thought of college that way? College was a time in which error was pouring it, rather than having to fight it. It's probably at the recommendation of Bishop Ambrose or his associate Simplicianus that Augustine reads the books, the Platonists. As he reads the Platonists during this period, and this would have been a codex, this would have been a collection of different Platonist authors, authors, not just Plato. He begins to see what they teach. And he learns that they teach something about God that is interesting to him, especially that, that God has spoken an eternal word. Um, God is one. Um, God is a supreme being. God is good. Uh, but they speak about the eternal word of the supreme being, which is God. And the Platonists seem to know that the eternal word is uh, an unchangeable word, a word which is raised high beyond all things. In this sense, what Augustine is really attracted to, really attracted to in the Platonists, is this idea of real transcendence. He knows Varro, he knows Roman religion inside and out, he knows the way in which it tends to be pantheistic, um, the way in which uh, R Roman religious theorists seem to think of uh, God as the soul of the world, right? Imminent in creation. We kind of live in a world like that, too, where people kind of think uh, sort of nature mysticism. Um, but the Platonists don't do that. They think God is raised high beyond all things, real transcendence, and they think through the question of how could you contemplate that reality that's high above all things. And the Platonists have a method for doing it. The philosopher can achieve a kind of contemplative union with the eternal word. Oh, this is attractive to Augustine. You could have a kind of disciplined intellectual ascent. And with someone of Augustine's intellectual caliber, that's deeply attractive. Remarkably, Augustine not only reads the Platonists, um, like we would read the Platonists, but it would never occur to us, hey, let's try that. Uh, unlike us, Augustine actually says, I want to try a contemplative ascent to the eternal word. And so he does. He makes a platonic ascent, transcending his own mind, as the Platonists advised, and he indeed miraculously glimpses the one. He glimpses the very cause and end of all that exists. And as he glimpses the one, he says this interesting phrase, also liturgical. I caught the fragrance, but could not feast. I caught the fragrance, but could not feast. I caught a vision, but it was a vision of happiness that I could not liturgically participate in. There was no altar on which I could be united to that vision of God. He was able to transcend his own mind and see a light that was not material, that blows his mind. An utterly different light, he says. It's an attempt at a platonic ascent that he says 
uh, is reminiscent, because he's, he's read Genesis by this time as well, um, and Exodus, uh, reminiscent of how God has revealed himself to Israel. Uh, he says specifically um, that God says, or the one says to both Moses and Plato, essentially, I am who I am, or I am being itself. Augustine recognizes that he has glimpsed the essence of existence itself, the unchangeable cause of all that exists. And he says in Book 7, Chapter 10, Section 16, I heard it as one hears a word in the heart. He heard it with his mind. Seeing the transcendent cause of the whole metaphysical scale of being, the essence of existence itself, sheds new light for Augustine on the goodness that's prior the goodness of all that exists, and then thus the evil of the privation of the good. Everything that exists is good, he writes, though not all things are equal. There is a scale, a hierarchical scale, in which being is like concatenated. It flows down to a scale in which we can see at each level the transcendent cause of all that exists. This is the total view, he says, and allows us to see the world light, rightly by God's light, to judge everything according to their lower and higher capacities within their order, all deeply platonic categories. Such a hierarchy is evident to Augustine by this time, as he's making these platonic ascents, even in how the mind moves from lower perceptual goods to the higher conceptual realities. Um, we can see two people kissing, right, materially, and then that's a perceptual thing, and then we immediately make judgments, right, at a, at a conceptual level. That's just how the mind works. In dialectic, we move from our material senses, gathering information about reality through our sense experience, to the act of making judgments, and then whole chains of reasoning about those judgments occur in the intellect, apprehension, judgment, reasoning. The mind just does this. It's naturally hierarchical. It naturally observes the hierarchies of a metaphysical scale going all the way up. But where does it flow? Right. It keeps going up and up and up to God. Yet there remains a problem in the Platonist scheme, Augustine sees. The intellect can see that being itself is the transcendent cause of all that is. But what sort of happiness does this Platonist ascent bring if we can only fall back from it? if we can smell the fragrance but not feast. The Platonists lack one thing, he decides, the Word made flesh. The Word made flesh whose sacrifice alone can unite the mind to God eternally. The Platonists know that the, our intellect can only be happy by seeing its cause. That's the only way. They know that. The mind's only going to be happy by seeing its cause. So that's why they make the contemplative ascent. But what he sees is that they lack the religious means. They lack the altar. They lack what might, might be translated in a dynamic equivalency as the glue. He uses the word adherare. If you know your Latin, it's, it's what we get our word for adhesive from. They lack the adhering thing or abide. They lack the thing which is... Uh, attaching us to God. And the thing that attaches us to God here uh, is something liturgical, something sacrificial. At this point, he's beginning to make an intellectual conversion. 
an intellectual conversion, not a conversion of his will, which will come. But he begins to see this is what's necessary. This is what the Platonists lack. They lack the means of attaching us. That's why they can smell the fragrance, but not these. It's only through John's gospel that he begins to see that it's by the word made flesh and his sacrifice raised up to union with God. Only by being united to the word made flesh could we be united to God. Christ is the bridge. He's beginning to realize this, that it is Christ who can purify our foul altars. Christ who can purify the interior altar. Christ who most importantly, this is flowing from also the Socratic tradition. Remember Socrates says you have to purify your life in order to be able to see the good, see the final end. Well, Augustine's finally saying something very, very similar to that. Actually, no, what you need is to have the interior altar purified. You have to have it purified by Christ who makes it possible for us to see God and live. The Platonists had helped him to turn his gaze towards God's invisible reality trying to understand it through created things. But he realized that we were too weak to enjoy God on our own. Our religious nature just isn't strong enough. It needs some power to elicit it, to raise it up, to partake of God's happiness without falling back upon ourselves in our religious nature. We need help. And Christ is that help. He sees this intellectually. The Platonic books are a genuine divine instrument in his life, a preambula fidei, leading him by the hand to the transcendent God. But they also give way, as it were, to Ambrose's preaching in Milan, to the books of the Bible, and especially the books of St. Paul. In St. Paul, he sees that Jesus Christ frees us from a death-laden body, a body which will just fall back on itself. And by the cup of his ransom, this is Augustine's preferred way of speaking about the actual sacrifice of Calvary, the cup of his ransom, because he's borrowing Paul's words about the cup of ransom. The cup of his ransom heals our wounds and sets us free for that eternal union in which we can be happy, as the Platonists cannot. Christ is the well-built road up, up, opened up by the heavenly emperor, he says in one evocative image. Christ is opening up something for civilization, the happiness not just of the soul, but of the cosmos. As he puts it, these truths were striking deep roots within me as I read the least of your apostles. It's all Paul. Something is operating on Augustine in the outer courts of the church in Milan. And by the end of the seventh book, he tells the reader about a new sacrifice. The sacrifice of an anguished spirit offered to God from a contrite and humbled heart. He's not yet become a Catholic, but he tells us that the cup of ransom has begun to strike deep roots within him, has begun to reorient the altar of his heart. Now, thirdly, a sacrifice of praise. Just as book seven ended with the tears of confession and the sacrifice of an anguished heart, reminiscent of Monica's tears and her heart's blood, culminating in the cup of ransom. Augustine maintains his emphasis on sacrifice in book eight as well. As book five began with the phrase, accept the sacrifice of my confessions, Augustine begins book eight with a new prayer. Let me offer you a sacrifice of praise, for you have snapped my bonds. Very first words. Augustine has well established his confessions as a double offering. 
now we see a distinct turn to the praise of the eternal life of God, uh, which he says he glimpsed it like a tantalizing reflection in a mirror, echoing what he said about the Platonist vision and also echoing St. Paul. For now we see in a mirror darkly, but then face to face, St. Paul writes, now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. You can see Augustine putting side by side the Platonic philosophy with St. John. You can see him putting him side by side with the philosophy, with the, with the words of St. Paul. He tells us here in Book 8 that he no longer has doubts. He went through a period of skepticism. You know, the skeptic is kind of an extreme lover of truth because they never want to fall into error. Uh, and uh, Augustine says, I, 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 no long, I no longer have that because for me to constantly fear that I'm going to fall into error means I'll never encounter the truth. And so he gives up on skepticism. He, he no longer demands, as Descartes might have, greater certainty, but now longs for the means only of attachment. He longs only for an altar which could uh, help his soul abide in God's eternal happiness. This is something more than simply the natural desire for God. This is something more than just the restless heart. He's daunted by it all. He fears that he himself cannot walk the narrow path that he's learned about. Augustine begins to speak about what still held him back. The enemy, he writes... The enemy had my power of willing in my clutch in its clutch, clutches, and from it forged a chain to bind me. It was no longer his intellect which held him back. He wanted to be Catholic. His intellect, you could say, was rightly ordered, recognizing the intellectual truth of Christianity. The disorder came not from the intellect, but from a misuse of his will. This will be primary Augustinian category for thinking about sin is the abuse of your will. Disordered lust springs from a perverted will, he writes. When lust is pandered to, a habit is formed. When habit, when habit is not checked, it hardens into compulsion, he writes. And this is how sin works. It's easily recognized as a pattern in sexual sin as well as in other kinds of sins, clearly associating the misuse of the will as what enslaves us, famously. What he's particularly impressed with, though, is a new will. He says a new will is emerging within him. He's torn, then, between two wills, one which longs to be united to God, and one which, he says, pulls him down into carnal lusts. And so he identifies now the existence of two wills within him. Not like the Gnostics have the idea of spirit being... Uh, good and matter being bad, he has a good will and a bad will, actually maps onto Jewish conceptions of will. Uh, that's another talk. The two wills he sees within the soul, the old and the new, duking it out, as it were. Augustine is, of course, echoing Paul, who sees the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit striving against the misuse of the flesh. In this way, the conflict now is not between is not an intellectual conflict. The conflict is between his good will, which desires to be united to God, and a bad will. He prefers one and not the other, and yet was constantly saying, make me chaste, Lord, but not yet. Make me yours, Lord, but not yet. It's a problem of the will. 
He identifies as a kind of pseudo-law of sin, a pseudo-law of sin which prefers my will over God's will. He needed a deeper kind of conversion, a conversion that he simply could not produce for himself. Though he sorely would like to be the mover of his conversion, he is moved, despairing. It's at this point we meet another Christian um, who spotted Augustine studying the letters of, of the Apostle Paul. Augustine is trying to read himself into his own conversion, um, and a man named Ponticianus tells him the story of a very, a very famous story of a, of a monk named St. Anthony of Egypt. And St. Anthony is an exemplar of how God works upon people. God moves people uh, to the true faith. They're never the mover themselves. Right? That God, in a sense, is prior. Augustine had never heard of monks or monasteries, even though there was one just out of Milan. It's clearly that what Augustine is looking for in St. Anthony is kind of image of what he himself wants for his conversion. Ponticianus recalls for him how one court official recalling the life of St. Anthony asks his other friend, where do we hope all our efforts are going to get us? Augustine relates that this convert also sensed a new life uh, emerging within him, a new will. Indeed, calls it that. As he reads St. Anthony, a change began to occur in that hidden place within me where you alone can see, uh, book 8, section 15. This is the interior will that we are not in command of, but that God is in command of. The interior will where God alone can move. In our exterior will, we can cooperate with God, Thomas Aquinas tells us. But in our interior will, only God can move. And it is this in which the act of faith must be moved for us. As Augustine says elsewhere in praise, God is nearer to me than I am to myself. And this is in the most intimate interior will where the interior altar lies. It's at this interior altar, you might say, where God must convert us, must convert our will, must cleanse our altar and make it holy. An intimate, interior, inaccessible point that God can access. The eighth bit book begins with the sacrifice of praise to God for moving his heart. But Augustine's struggle remains one of pride, a theme which is carried over from book seven. He wants to be the mover of his own conversion, to be the commander of his salvation. He was saying to myself, now is the moment. Let it be now. Turn. In a much neglected passage, he records a kind of contemplative vision of Lady Continence. Now, who is Lady Continence? She appears to him, he says, as the fruitful mother of children conceived in joy from you, her bridegroom. It's a vocative way of putting it. Continence is the fruitful mother of children conceived in joy from you, her bridegroom. He writes that Lady Continence smiled at him with a most challenging smile. He writes, why? This is the voice of Lady Continence. I want you to try to think who you think it is. She, she says, why try to stand by yourself, Augustine, only to lose your footing? Cast yourself on him and do not be afraid. He will not step back and let you fall. Cast yourself upon him trustfully 
He will support and heal you. Who, do, who does it make you think of? Hmm? Mary. It's so Marian, right? It's so Marian. Why doesn't he call it Mary? Why Lady Continence? Somebody who can make him continent, make him stick, as it were. Give him the means of attachment. Give him the glue, the adhorari, the adhesive. Why try to stand by yourself? But rather fall and he'll catch you. Trust, have faith. It's a striking Marian vision which immediately precedes what? His conversion. God moving ahead of him. God is first, not us. God moves ahead of us to prepare our will, not so that we can convert ourselves, but so that we can be converted. This very Marian image of continence implores him, quote, close your ears against those unclean parts of you, interior altar, sacrifices of sin, foul deeds. Close your ears against those unclean parts of you. And you know what his next line is, I wept uncontrollably. I wept uncontrollably at these words, close your ears against the unclean. Rivers of tears flow from his eyes and he calls those tears, like Monica's tears, an acceptable sacrifice. It's under the mantle of this vision of continence that Augustine suddenly hears that famous child singing. Tale lege, tale lege. Take up and read. Just a nursery song. But he hears take up and read now as a divine word to him. And he opens up the 13th chapter of St. Paul's letter to the Romans. Of like one of those randoms, I'm desperate, I'm going to open up the Bible and put my finger anywhere. He puts it to the 13th chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. And what are the words? Make no provisions for the flesh, but rather put on the Lord Jesus Christ. The same thing that Lady Continence just told him. Make no provisions for the set. Don't listen to the unclean parts yourself, but trust that Christ is the one who can purify you. In other words, unite your life to his life, your will to his will, your memory to his memory. Offer your sacrifice upon the altar of his perfect sacrifice, or unite your the, your offering to his perfect offering and trust in his purification. Augustine writes, the light of certainty then flooded my heart. The act of faith was a light that was more certain. And all dark shades of doubt fled away. He wanted to convert himself, but concluded that the only thing he could do was to fall prostrate, prostrate before God. And this, Augustine concluded, you, Lord, had converted me to yourself. I'm just gonna conclude with one more paragraph and then you can ask questions. Uh, in 387, on the evening of April 24th, Augustine, Olypius, Adiodatus, his son, and the others were baptized at the Easter vigil by Bishop Ambrose in a wide octagonal font. The water was exercised and blessed by the bishop and Augustine descended into the steps of the cathedral baptistry. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Those were the words that must have run, rung like midnight church bells in the temple of Augustine's memory. Ambrose baptized him in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He writes of it in Book 9, Chapter 6, Section 14. And so we were baptized. And all our dread about our earlier lives dropped away from us, and I could not get enough 
of the wonderful sweetness that filled me, Augustine later wrote. He immediately received First Communion. He was most intensely moved by the beauty of the Ambrosian literature, liturgy by the sacred music, most likely sung by the clerical choirs. Those voices, he writes, flooded my ears, and the truth was distilled into my heart until it overflowed. He delights in the fragrance of it all. He writes, I once gasped for you, but now at last I breathed your fragrance and feasted, enveloped by the graces freely flowing to him. Augustine knows that the altar of his heart has been turned around and purified. He knows that it is only God who can draw together all the scattered and fragmented elements of our lives. But now he knows the most important thing, that we must offer all of ourselves, including our tears, to be forged in the fires of divine charity. He concludes, O love ever burning, never extinguished, O charity, my God, set me on fire. All right, thank you. I, if I had more time, I would read this next section, which is about his vision in Ostia with St. Monica, in which he actually makes the same kind of platonic ascent again um, with his mother, but now it's an ascent to the Trinity. And instead of being disappointed that he comes back down, um, they come back to the altar. They come back to mass. And that's not disappointing. That's taste of heaven. Um, and so the kind of full circle of bringing the, the, the kind of height of platonic contemplation is no longer disappointing even in this life for Christian contemplation actually gives you the means of attachment on the altar. Thank you. Questions, comments? Yes. You also briefly mentioned Calvinism and mm -hmm. uh, as this is a little bit less confessionist related but more Augustinian related since that's what you specialize in. Could you reflect a little bit on why Augustine is so commonly perverted, or so commonly claimed by the Calvinists? You know, I mean, Calvin himself um, sometimes says Augustine's not with us here. I think it's more in our popular perception um, because uh, Calvin does actually admire Augustine and quotes him a lot. Um, but I think uh, Calvin himself is aware that Augustine doesn't teach total depravity. Um, there's no way in which you can really get total depravity from these texts in which there's the, you know, sin is a privation of the good. It already excludes the idea of total depravity. I think the appreciating how liturgical human beings are helps us also understand the world we live in. That uh, every, everybody that is gone crazy over certain political ideologies are actually um, in the wrong way pursuing that religious impulse, um, a deeply religious impulse, and being able to identify that and to understand it, uh, that it is actually rooted in the desire for God. Um, uh, but it's not going to make them happy. It's not going to make people happy because fundamentally the innate desire for God can go in a thousand wrong ways. And Augustine's point is uh, certainly reason can do some purifying to help us be able to, I mean, the Platonists, Aristotle, very, very impressive intellectual purifications which rise to the true God. But for most people, 
uh, the innate desire for God is not going to lead them to union with God. It's not going to lead them to eternal happiness. Uh, and that's, in a sense, the Augustinian promise uh, is that this is why we need a preacher. That's why we need a whole order of preachers. Sorry, a Timothy Institute joke. <laughs> yes? You mentioned that the um, kind of experience with Mass and you know coming down from that platonic descent but coming down to Mass was not a disappointment to him. Um, it just seems he like, didn't live through the 70s. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like given all of the, the talk that he kind of forced into confessions about sacrifice in general, it seems that Mass would be kind of a central thing for him. I haven't read the confessions. Does he talk more about that? Like, so. So church fathers generally in this period are, they, they, they generally observe um, uh, the mystagogical mysteries, which means they don't talk publicly about the sacred things of the mass. And so they uh, will often use circumlocutions to talk about them. And so if you are not accustomed to reading the church fathers and you don't know that, then it seems like, well, they never talk about, you know, the mysteries of the mass. Well, they're not supposed to. Uh, in catechumens were asked to leave at a certain point so that they couldn't even see the, the mysteries performed, right? And so Augustine, Augustine will use key um, circumlocutions, the cup of ransom for, for, the, for uh, uh, the chalice. He'll, he'll use uh, the language of feasting and the altar language so that if you're a Catholic and you know what, what the mysteries are, they resonate for you. If you don't, they sort of pass over it as mysticisms. Um, so he's observing that, like all other church fathers. Yes, sir. Yes. Um, how were the Platonists and other pagan writers who the Christian, who the church fathers drew upon, how were they viewed by the Christians who drew upon them? Is, say your question one more time. Uh, how are the, how are the how did the Christians view the church fathers? No, um, how, how did the early Christians and the church fathers especially view the Platonists and oh. the, other, the other pagan philosophers who they, to some extent, drew upon? Yeah, I mean, the, the famous counterexample is Tertullian. This is what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? Someone unfairly quoted in that. But, but Tertullian does have a sort of antipathy towards philosophy um, and thinks that in similar ways, actually, thinks, you know, well, this doesn't lead to, you know, salvation. So in a, if whatever doesn't lead to salvation isn't leading the right way. Right? Uh, so there's this kind of point there. Um, but I think, I think uh, many fathers uh, look to Plato. Uh, many, many church fathers look to Plato as the kind of supreme example um, of, of reason reaching its pinnacle, reason ascending to wisdom. Um, I mean, I didn't talk about Cicero's Hortensius. Um, Augustine talks about Cicero's Hortensius, but that's, that's a lost text to us. Um, but that text makes the same argument, or rather Cicero is alleged to have made the same point in that argument, that the, the mind makes this ascent to wisdom, and that's the highest thing that the mind can achieve. I think most church fathers would agree that that's a philosophical good. Um, but I think, like Augustine, most would say, but they utterly lack the means of attachment to that object, which is bad, since you want to be happy. 